0: to another knock-on podcast, an on-time podcast. At that, I'm going to just say I'm, my schedule has somewhat freed up, and I'm not too far behind on this podcast, so I'm excited about that. Um, I had pretty awesome turkey hunting week last week. Normally, I have a big group in. We go for the inaugural turkey belt, the strutter championship there with my belt uh but a bunch of schedules got messed up confused mixed up some people didn't draw tags and in the end I was able to have my opening day of my turkey season to be able to do what I wanted without a big group so I called my buddy Adam Adam came and we sat together we were trying to we were going to try to go for a one two uh two punch between the two of us started out pretty good then got real slow stayed after it stayed patient next thing you know two big old gobblers came in silent and i made a good shot on the first one and before the other one or while the other one was trying to figure it out you know i shot and then i kind of looked over at adam and he was kind of focused on that camera So in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, he just wants me to shoot this second bird. So I just, like, did a real quick reload. It's I didn't realize how fast it was, so maybe I didn't. I might not have gave Adam enough opportunity to really decide what he wanted to do. That could be my fault. But either way, I shot both of them. Sorry, Adam. Um, So I'm tagged out in Iowa so that's how it goes. Now I've got so much time on my hands I don't even know what to do with myself. That's completely untrue, but what I have done though is I've loaded some sweet YouTube videos up here in the last few days. Today I loaded probably one of the most awesome videos you'll ever watch in your life on the YouTube channel. It's on the it's the original Carter Evolution release aid tutorial from back when Kid and Play was cool and half a bottle of hair gel, some sweet bass riffs and a little bit of scratching on an old record was pretty fly so you're going to enjoy this backyard production of a DVD that I did over a decade ago Uh, so you're going to have a good laugh but in the end there's there's some decent content in there too. There's you know, really some important information about how to properly use that Carter evolution. But more importantly, there's the information that also relate to curing buck fever and curing target panic, which in my book all go hand in hand. So this don't judge the video. Keep in mind it is old. So I'm kind of motivated now to do a different one. It's always tough when you're able to, when you're videoing yourself and then you look at it 10 years later, you think, what the hell was I doing back then? So I don't know. It's probably be even funnier when I'm older. But as for now, I'm helping you guys out by putting it on there. It's free. Uh, just YouTube search, Carter Evolution Release Tutorial 2016, John Dudley, uh, with parentheses, Retro Hairdo. <laughs> and then I also loaded a video this week on the Knock on Archer YouTube channel, um, which was, I, I didn't even really know I had it. I was looking through, I'm in the process of editing Actually, by today, I'll have to finish the last Knock on TV episode. Um, so I was going through a whole bunch of older footage trying to find something back in my archives of hard drives. And somehow or another, I just saw this file that just said Biter and opened it up. And there was old like uh, video tape video that I, someone had captured for me. From when I went to Werner Biter's facility in Germany, Uh, this at the time was the most state-of-the-art facility there was. Super awesome place, huge pioneer to archery. Um, Mr. Biter will be missed tremendously by the industry. He recently passed, and um, this was just really cool. I got to. I was flying a lot then. I was doing a world tour at that time. Uh, just doing seminars and coaching for national teams, and I and he asked me he sent a message through through our different channels, and we ended up meeting up. Uh, Werner and um, and Lorenz. For any of you in the archer community, you know who I'm talking about. But we got to have some some wine and have some food and get to see the facility and then they watched me shoot for a while and it took me a little while to wake up. I, I remember um, looking at the video, I had 18 hours of travel to get there and literally got out and started shooting. I shot one, my first arrow was to the right of the 10 ring, so I moved my sight and then pretty much started a scoring round and ended up shooting, uh, shooting the new record. For his facility, so it's pretty cool footage to see that. It's kind of like a old home video for any of you out there who kind of care about that stuff. Next thing is, I want to tell all you out there. So, I had to. I worked with Jerry Carter and developed. I've always liked. I've always liked a two finger release, and the reason, if you look back at when I competed, I always competed with the release called a two special. It was it was almost like well it was like a target four or the original just cuz but you know it had a hole in it but the overall shape was the same but there was a two a two-finger version and It wasn't popular to shoot a two finger then. Uh, Most people that had a two finger is just because they wanted to try it and cut off a three finger, but this was an actual finished two finger. I shot them and loved them, and as I shot, people throughout the archery world start, they're like, Where did you get that? And they were really hard to find. Um, I ended up buying 10 of them throughout Europe. As I was traveling to all these shops that had bought one, and no one really knew what it was and didn't sell but i've got I had a collection of them that I competed with for for years and years and years, and I just really believe the less fingers you have on a release aid, the more accurate it can be because it's all about leverage the The less you manipulate a release with your ring finger or pinky finger. Um, The less torque you're putting on your loop and the less opportunity you have for inconsistency. Um, But anyway, I really like the newer style release aids like the Simple One or the Too Simple. And there's been a tremendous amount of you out there sending me messages that you've bought these and that you really like how they work. Um, This past year, Carter came out with the Wise Choice release, which I had been really talking with Jerry about for years because I wanted to get um, a just cause shape of release, but with an auto closing jaw. So you can just push one button and it closes the jaw. Um, But I wanted, you know, the two simple and the simple one don't have a hole, which I really like a hole for the index finger. But anyway, I shot the wise choice earlier in this year and then I, I ended up cutting a finger off of it and I told Jerry, I said, I really want to try to reproduce like one of my original two simples, but with this style of release with the auto closing jaw, the index finger hole, but I needed a little bit more. The original two special didn't have um, the shape of the of the casing didn't hook around your middle finger it was smooth so you could almost slip it kind of down the end of the release so to speak but um we ended up building one he told me he would build me what i wanted and anodize them the way that i wanted Um, i also wanted them all built with a heavy cocking spring with a certain weight trigger spring Um, I also put a hole on there to have an option for a wrist lanyard, for those of you who like that. But anyway, I haven't named this little guy yet, but I have a full batch. Uh, There's going to be 70 of them. That's all there's going to be, at least for now. There's 70 of this new little deuce. I don't know what I'm going to call it, but... It, uh, dropping a deuce. I don't know. I, I actually texted Joe Rogan and tried to see if I could come up with a funny name. I was thinking about knocking a deuce, but uh, I don't think Sharon's going to let that fly. Yeah, I don't know. It's a little two-finger green casing with the knock-on logo. It is freaking awesome, and I can't wait to be able to get them out there for all of you. So once I put them up, which is going to be... They're being built uh, yesterday and today, so I should have them by next week. But these are going to be an awesome release for any of you release gurus out there. I'll uh, post a picture of it later today and let you guys check it out. But anyway, enough babbling. It's been 10 minutes of babbling, I see. So I want to get into some questions today from the Facebook followers and... Um, I'm just trying to to share the love. Last time I focused mainly on the Instagrammers, so I had my faithful sidekick Antoine copy and paste me a bunch of your questions from the Facebook side of things. If I get these people wrapped up, then Instagrammers, I'll move on to you. Otherwise, I'll save you for a later day. Um all right, well, my first question here, and I don't have names, so I'm not going to be able to, like, give you your three seconds of fame, whoever, Because an- and you'll have to blame Antoine. He did not copy people's names, so I can't say uh, Chuck Norris. question is, on fitness, mainly lifting, lifting exercises, um, what should an archer do to build muscle without the fear of holding um of having a holding issue due to worn out and fatigued muscles or in the worst case scenario hurting yourself I'm trying to get in better shape in archery but I'm afraid to do any kind of lifting. So the main thing is with lifting, you need to you need to realize there's going to be a break in period. No different than even back in high school if you played three sports a year, if you haven't played for a month or two and you go back to practice, you're going to be stiff. You know, fitness is a lifestyle. I don't take big breaks from fitness. Um, a lot you know, actually I take probably bigger breaks away from shooting and when I come back, I feel sore just the same. So you need to make sure you know off the get-go that you're gonna have that to tend with and you don't want to let it be a deterrent because you're sore for the first week or maybe even the second week. Um, but what I did and what I do for a lot of my students that are more on a basic program, Is to start out, I really like to just focus on four days of fitness. Uh, I really like to, I like the number four for this simply because a lot of you that are coming to me with these types of questions are also weekend uh, tournament archers. You guys are, you know, shooting 3Ds, you're shooting league shoots. And the other thing, too, is the weekends are family time for a lot of people as well. So if you're for the average person that's just starting to commit to fitness, if you if I give you a plan that you're not really going to be around on certain days, then it really starts to defeat the odds and it starts to build some habits of not you know, not doing a workout on the right day, and it kind of throws everything off. So here's a real simple four-day deal. So day one, and I I actually learned this from, uh, from Frank Zane years ago. I actually broke this down into more days, but for archers, I've used the same theory and combined it. So the body is divided in half, and you know, half of a, half of a limb is going to have a pushing side and half of a limb is going to have a pulling side. You know, one leg is, half of your leg will pull, half of your leg will push. Your chest will push, your back will pull. You know, there's a push-pull system in the body. So on Mondays, I normally focused first on the pushing muscles. I would go in the gym. I would focus on the pushing, which would be chest, Shoulders, triceps. Um, Also, you look at your legs. If you're doing squats or leg extensions, uh, all pushing muscles. And, you know, bench press, incline press, shoulder raises, tricep tricep extensions. And then, you know, like I said, uh, doing getting on like a leg machine where you're doing a leg press or a leg extension are all really good, uh, super good. Or even just, you know, doing slow, you know, like a slow steady pace on a stair climber or something good for the legs. I would do that on a Monday. And that way, I did it that way because, you know, you utilize a lot of pushing muscles in your archery. You're pulling muscles you use when drawing the bow, but when it really comes to the stability part, that front half in your bone alignment in your chest, in your shoulders, and your triceps, they all play a big part in how your bow actually holds. And for me, I always wanted that on a Monday simply because, you know, when I come back from a tournament, I'm not going to be eager to go out and shoot on a Monday if I've been, you know, especially if I went to a big championship. A shot And then I had to make a long drive back home on a Monday or on a Sunday night. So Monday is not going to be the best time to really focus on shooting. A lot of times you got crap to catch up on. Mondays are the worst days for work. So I really use my Mondays for making equipment adjustments from the weekend prior. If there was things that I thought that maybe I could improve on or change on my equipment, I would work on those Mondays simply because that was also my day when I did you know my hardest lifts for my pushing muscles. Then on Tuesday I would start to focus on you know getting some repetition in, some shooting in. But for my main workout I would do running. You know, I think if you just make it a point to run for twenty minutes to start with twice twice a week, then move it up to three times a week. And really the key is staying at a pace for for 20 minutes you know maybe at first it you only do a mile but then you slowly start to think try to build up that pace within that same amount of time and you'll make a lot of progression now a lot of these tips i'm saying right now are going to be for people that are obviously new to it like for this question new to fitness uh, so I'd have pushing muscles on Monday, I would do a 20 minute run, or I'd like you to do a 20 minute run on Tuesday, then Wednesdays i do pulling muscles, so you're talking bicep, back, uh, hamstrings, so, you know, pulling, any type of pulling, you know, pull downs, uh, pull ups, I really like to have the hands in a neutral position for, uh, if you're like, at the gym, and you're using like a pull-down machine. Um, if your palms are facing away from you, you put pressure on the outside of your forearms. If your palms are facing you, you'll put, you know, you'll put more emphasis on your biceps. If your hands are in a neutral position, the same position as when they're hanging down by your side. If they have an attachment there that allows you to have your hands in a neutral position, not with your palms facing you or facing away. That, in my opinion, is a better option for a pulling motion. Um, bent over dumbbell raises, dumbbell pullovers are all good. Um, you know, then do bicep curls uh, at the end because your biceps are a pretty durable muscle. I like to normally do those after I've kind of burnt them out doing my pulling motions. Um, and then again, on Thursday, you're going to go back to your running. So you've got a pushing day, a running day, a pulling day, a running day. Friday you've got off because you're probably going to be traveling to a tournament. And the, during the weekend you have the option, if anything, just do some running. Uh, you're going to have some soreness, but that's part of the game. The, the important thing is the more you do it and build it into your practice, the better off you're going to be. Um, I remember... At a world championship, you know, I was in a I was in a, a medal match the next day, but still got up at you know before daylight, got up, went out, and I think I did like five miles or something. And you know, I f- kind of figured I was the only person at a tournament that was going to be doing that, and I ended up actually running into the guy that I was going to be shooting the medal match with. Um, Morgan London I ended up finding him out there doing the same thing so I think the serious archers make it a lifestyle and it's not just something that you know you're going to do once and then not do again if this is part of your routine no different than grabbing your bow and going out and practicing then this is going to play a huge part in your success the main thing is you got to just get it in your mind there's going to be soreness at the beginning The main thing is, when you're doing your lifting, make less weight feel heavier. That was one of the best tips I got from Arnold. Um, You can take a 50 pound weight and make it feel like 80 if you slow down the movement. Um, And that's really important for archers because we have to develop a very, very strict mind-muscle connection. And if you're just focusing on the positive movements, which, for example, like on a bench press would just be the pushing out part. If you just focus on the positive contraction, then you don't really develop that muscle control. The muscle control is developed on the negative cycle, which would be as you're letting that bar down and resisting the weight. Um, that's why a lot of times if you go, for those of you travel, you go to a hotel, at least like me, I'll go to a hotel and, you know, they maybe only have 50 pound weights as a max. Whereas, you know, a lot of times right now, if I'm doing chest presses or incline presses or something, I'd, I'd have double that. But, you know, you kind of just go in there and you're like, oh, well, they don't have very heavy weights, but okay, I'm just going to make do. And you end up what I end up doing is I end up slowing myself down even more and not letting that muscle relax at all. And I'm just holding that weight and just doing like partial reps, just really making that muscle hold that weight for longer amounts of time. And I find that my pumps are actually much better. And it's mainly because you're focusing so much on that negative contraction. And that's a really, really important thing that archers need to develop Uh, Okay, next question here. Um, Does playing dead during a bear attack really work, or is that theory just hogwash? Okay, Um, I'm assuming you watched The Revenant. I actually watched that for the first time three days ago and watched Leonardo DiCaprio encounter the Grizzly, and it was fairly humorous. Um, You know, I think... Some of the biting was maybe spot on, but um, at least the grizzlies I've seen in the wild, or black bears for that matter, that start to to go into attack mode, um, it's quite a different situation. Um, I do know that there's well, f- my recommendations are this: grab around the back of your neck as hard as you can with both of your hands and cover your neck and guard your neck. Um, they're gonna try to bite you in the neck and they're gonna try to bite you on the top of the head. Um, they're probably gonna swat you. I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of swatting. Um, my 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 old faithful guide up in BC Bert's got some some claw marks through the back of his jacket from some SWATS. Um, but for the most part, if you do get in between like a cub and a sow, I mean, you are going to be in for a beating. Um, the main thing is if they don't feel like there's a threat, you do have a pretty good chance of them leaving. Um, it just really depends if on the situation, I think if you're encounter bear that's pissed off and hungry, um, I think playing dead, just going to make, just going to have them start putting dirt over the top of you faster. Um if it's a bear that's just trying to defend the cub and then plan an exit strategy, then yes, that could work. But main thing is get your hands around the back of your neck, freaking tuck your elbows as tight into your knees as you can, get yourself into a ball. Um because if if a bear's really throwing down like that one, you wanna protect your organs your freaking neck and your face um i've i've had some of the most amazing bear stories told me from people that i've come across that have survived attacks and um the don't don't necessarily play out what leonardo dicaprio did or i think you're a dead man um and again you got to read the temperament of the bear if you're if you just come across them and they they're going after you as more of a defense, then yeah, I think uh, letting them feel like the threat was immobilized can help defuse the situation. But if you come across an old ornery grizz that's just came out of a den and he's really hungry and you got a bunch of elk blood on your arms, then um, I think you need to defend yourself and protect yourself and defend yourself because I think playing dead is just going to mean that he puts a bunch of dirt and moss on the top of you faster. Uh, next question here is, um, one, I'm not sure if I missed out or, but I watched knock and ready to rock segment about fletching. And you mentioned lining up the veins with the blades benefits and reasons. So, um, indexing your blades and veins, it is important. And, It was funny because several, I think it was last year, Randy Ulmer actually wrote an article about this. And he said that it wasn't important for you to line up your veins and your broadheads. And I actually sent him a message and said, "Uh, Randy, you're wrong on that. Um, You do need to. And I showed him some evidence of why. And told him to try it. Now, on certain people's bows, and if Randy's looking at his bow, which he spends a lot of time really finding an arrow that perfectly matches his setup, and he's, you know, he's not shooting crazy fast speeds, um, then yeah, some people can get away with it. But that's not the that's not you know the rule of thumb. That's not written in stone. For the most part, most people need to have their blades and their veins indexed to where at least they're all the same now i'm not going to say if your blade is completely opposite of your vein alignment it's not going to shoot worse it's just going to shoot different the main thing is all of your arrows need to have those broadheads aligned with the veins in the same orientation and you're going to have much, much better results. Um, the best devices out there for that is the that is that G5ASD tool, the arrow squaring device. Really nice for filing off the end of your shaft a little bit. Uh, for those of you who are shooting like an internal component, like a hit system or a deep six system, um, if you have like a standard aluminum insert that uses hot melt, then uh, it's much, much easier for blade indexing, which sometimes for me, if I know I'm going to be really shooting fixed blades, a lot of times I'll choose an arrow that's easier for me to index them as well. But there is importance to it, and the faster you shoot and the, the more, um, well, the further off your spine is in comparison to matching your bow correctly, the more this will have importance as well. But it's all aerodynamics, you know. It needs to be the same. You know, you don't look at an airplane out on the runway, and every one of them has a tail fin and a wing fin that are in a different position. You have to build them the same. I got to take a little drink here. Ah, got a little mixed berry enduro going this morning. Kind of hooked on the mountain hops pre and post drinks right now. I like that, my little wake-up call in the morning. Um, Let's see here. So hopefully that answered your question. Next question, what have you noticed differently, if anything, in your shot execution from going from the cable stops, and this is speaking specifically on the cams of my Hoyt bows, the cables would stop on the cam um, once you came to full draw. Um, what have you noticed in your execution of going from the cable stops to the new limb stop on the Hoyt this year? I really, really like it. Super, super good wall. Uh, it's going to be really, really solid. Um, you know, it, it just really, when it comes to the, the valley of a cam, how the cam actually breaks over and when it stops, sometimes it wants to go forward more, sometimes it doesn't. But that whole feel and how solid the wall is all that feel is preference um i've got one bow that has it on i have one bow that has it off uh i really love how it feels when it's on But I also don't mind how it feels when it's off, if that makes sense. If you like a super-duper solid wall, then you are going to like this. And that's why they give you the option of taking it off, using it or not using it, because um, I actually like to have a little bit of give in the cam sometimes, especially like if I'm shooting an Evolution. I don't want the wall so hard to where if I'm pulling against it, I start wanting to move the front half of the body off the target. You know, a lot of people, and I think I I think there's a question somewhere down further down this line about if why you start to pull yourself off the target as you're pulling through. And I think if you have a super solid wall where the wall is just like hitting a rock, um, I think. That type of system is really set up for the people that are more focused on aiming um, than they are on pulling through. I think having a little bit of a solid wall, but also not like, I don't know, a concrete wall, so to speak, um, helps the people that are pulling through the cam Uh, I think the more solid that whole system is, if you're trying to pull back, you also affect the front. So I would encourage you to try it both ways and see which one you actually like better. I think when it comes to how a bow feels when you pick it off the rack and you just pull it back and the bow stops, you're going to like how that bow feels the best with the limb stop. But then when it comes to how you're actually shooting, it's going to depend on your style of shooting. And then you may find that you may actually like the performance of one versus the other. Uh, next question here is, if you got uh, time, talk a little bit more about the mental part of holding the pin on a target. Everyone can do it physically, but mentally it seems tough to actually bring the pin down and hold it on the target while executing the shot. Yeah, it's for some people, especially people that want control, it's next to impossible to actually get your pin on the target, cover the target. Um I talk about this a lot. I feel like a lot of people are actually more afraid of hitting the target than they are of missing. Um, And the reason I say that is because in order to hit the target in the middle, you have to have your pin in the middle. So when people aren't putting their pin in the middle of the target and they're shooting the release and then trying to force their pin towards the middle, then in my opinion, they're afraid to hit. They're not afraid to miss because you're aiming where you're missing. So obviously, mentally, that's what you really want to do is shoot someplace other than the middle. You've got to like flip your mindset here and realize that you want the pin on on the center, and you also need to come to terms with the fact that it's not always going to sit perfectly still. You know, a lot of people are are more stable when they're frozen off of the bullseye than when they actually get on the bullseye, and a lot of that is in relation to your anxiety. Um, you just naturally, if you've had target panic in the past, you're just worried about not having control of when that release is going to go off and you feel like you're in the gold right now. So you want the shot to go right now and you need to just start mentally playing a game with yourself, you know, say, okay, listen, I, I'm going to hold, I'm going to keep my pin in the middle for five seconds before I'm going to think about get my finger to the trigger, and then pull back and try to do it for 10 seconds. And then, you know, maybe another game of how slow can I actually pull this trigger until it fires? You know, can I actually apply pressure to this trigger for five seconds before it fires? Um, There's so many different tactics that I've used. It just really depends on what mental block you're at. You know, or, what mental? Everyone has some type of a mental issue if they're struggling with target panic. Some people's are different than others, and you have to continually try different things as a coach. For some people, it just clicks right away if you just show them what a good shot feels like and you just say, okay, you know, you work on them to just have one good shot and then for me I can almost see it in their face when they really understand oh wait yeah I've never had that before that's what I want yeah that was way better in those cases you just have a lot you have much more ability to just instantly start to focus those types of people just on the execution in the field but when people have a true freezing problem where they're just totally frozen and afraid to get on the target, then you have to really go much further back and get them to be able to hold you know, hold on a spot without wanting to hit the release um, or hold on the spot in the center without them having the option of freezing off it. So in those situations... I either have people shooting a really big bullseye, close, almost to the point where you can't not have your pin in the center of the target, Um, or another thing that I'll do is I'll cut out pictures of targets out of a catalog or something, out of a Lancaster catalog or whatever, and I'll tape that picture of the target directly to the back of their scope to where the center of their fiber or the center of their pin is in the dead center of that target. And then I'll have them work on blank bail shooting. But in their scope picture, they're seeing their pin in the center of a target. And no matter how much they're moving around or shaking around or bouncing around, it doesn't really matter. Their pin is still in the middle And then they just focus on the same techniques of blank bailing, just going through shots and executing and blank bailing. And as you do that, you're going to just continue to build the confidence of it's okay to have your pin in the middle of that target and just execute your shot. So there's a lot of steps. Those steps are going to be my first, my first ones and, uh, Like I said, everybody's different, so it's hard for me to just tell you on this podcast what you need to, but I can tell you that from my point of view, I focus on the execution. I focus on the movement of coming through the shot. I focus less about the pin and more about looking at the spot I want to be shooting into. I really try to work on a system to where the subconscious is doing its job on centering that pin at the spot that you're staring at wanting that arrow to go to. If you do that, I think you're going to be really further ahead overall as an archer. Uh, next question here, uh, this is going to be a stabilizer. I had a few stabilizer questions, so I'm kind of going to combine them into this. So this one is, um, my stabilizers balance really well shooting flat. Um, but I can't find a good way to balance them in up and downhill shooting. My back bar comes straight back with a minimal angle, but it always wants to fall towards the string on uphill shots and away from the string on downhill shots, giving me left and right misses constantly. I feel I thought I was—I thought it was my third axis on my sight, but I've checked that. It is my stabilizers. When I remove my stabilizers, my left and right misses go away, but it's Not as pretty of a holding pattern on the target. Any tips for balancing the bow for steep angles? So, um, There's a couple things. One, if you're shooting on hills, side hills especially, you really need to get in the habit of drawing your bow with your top limb slightly leaning into the hill. Uh, Because what happens is... As you draw back and you anchor and you naturally relax that front arm, your bow limb, the top limb, is going to naturally want to fall downhill. Uh, It's just gravity. So if you draw with your top limb into the hill, by the time you anchor, settle into your peep, and start to relax that front arm to stabilize, you're going to find that that top limb will actually come downhill a little bit and if you've drawn with your with your bow about a half a bubble into the hill then as you relax that bubble is going to slowly slide right back to the center it's really going to help you um, with your consistency on left to rights for side hills now when it comes to stabilizers I just really feel this is a category that's got out of control. A lot of people are having these stabilizer setups that are just incredibly heavy. And they're starting to cause problems. These stabilizer setups with this mass amount of weight. Listen, if you want to hold steady, if you want to be a person that just wants to hold like like a rock and then punch a release or wait for the release to fire, which there's a few people in the world that can do that accurately. A few, but I can tell you that the likelihood of you becoming like those five or six guys that you see on the pro line that do that weekend after weekend versus the other thousands and thousands of great archers out there that might not have major weekend performances but that are consistent all year long and that are just overall awesome archers the difference is if you're setting yourself up just to lock in and hold and wait then I've just believed that unless you're one of those few guys you're setting yourself up for problems down the road uh, a lot of the paper tuning issues that people are having right now where they can't get certain tears out, you know, my bow tears this way, my bow tears that way. I don't know how many times, I lost track of how many times I can just grab someone's bow, take off their stabilizers that have way too much weight, um, going in opposite directions from the bow and then just shoot a perfect hole through paper, um, I would think you would be better off reducing that weight and working on your ability to stabilize a little bit more. Accept some of that floating. Don't feel like you have to be solid. Accept some movement and focus more on pulling through that movement. You're going to have way more arrows in the middle. And The other thing, too, is most people throughout the course of a full tournament – they can't manage the amount of weight that they've set themselves up with on their bows. It's just too much, too much physical weight. And by the time the end of the day rolls around, people are just burnt out and their shoulders are fatigued and all the minor stabilizing muscles inside of the shoulder socket start to fatigue. And overall, you just can't manage the weight for a prolonged period of time. And you're setting yourself up for failure later in the day. And if you're a competitive target archer, that is the worst time to be broken down. You need to be warmed up and literally in your zone and stroking at the end of the day, not burnt out where your shoulder and your little muscles and your aiming and your stability and your core are all starting to break down because you've been toting around this, you know, three extra pounds of stabilizer weight. Uh, Let's see. Next question here. Well, I might talk a little bit more about that. Somewhere I had, um, I don't know where it is. I saw another question specific about stabilizers, but They all relate to the same thing. I just really like to keep my stabilizer system simple. I like to have a front stabilizer that's the, if I'm a target archer, that's a length to where I can set, I can set my bow, uh, the end of my stabilizer down on the ground. My front arm is relaxed in between every shot. I don't like to see people that are fighting these big, heavy stabilizers everywhere that they have to maintain and hold that weight and keep their shoulder high and keep their shoulders scrunched up so that they can have their front arm uh, manipulated so that they can get around these stabilizer setups they have. All that is just literally putting hurdles in front of yourself. Um, Your shot sequence should be super clean. You should fully rest between shots no pressure you shouldn't be having to hold your bow up in the air hold your bow sideways you should be able to relax reset grab an arrow lift the bow up knock it go through this routine and it should happen a lot faster but also it should happen without you having to strain yourself in between each and every shot Uh, next question here Is I would love to hear what a professional archer means when they say that a bow is very forgiving. Um, How a longer axle to axle is more forgiving. Please forgive my lack of knowledge. I'm new to archery, been listening to the podcast from episode one. Um, Love them for all the helpful information that you put out. Um, Sure has helped me embark on a brand new adventure. Well, welcome to archery, buddy. Wish I had your name on here so I could say who you are. Um, said he shot a back tension today for the first time. So, awesome. Welcome to archery. Uh, appreciate that. Um, so, forgiveness. There's a lot of things in forgiveness. The main thing is a lot of the professional archers can really grab any bow and shoot good. Um, however, there's certain setups that we build that allow us to get away with our mistakes uh, Everybody has different types of flaws in their shooting For me, in the way that I shoot um, A lot of times my flaw comes when my front shoulder breaks down And starts to creep up and come high um, It starts to slightly change my draw length And you know, overall I just start to break down I just think that having a bow that's forgiving means that it allows you to shoot at maybe an 80% level and hit the middle versus shooting at a 90 or 95% level and hit the middle. Uh, For example, on the Hoyt's, there's a lot of awesome archers out there that just love the spiral cams. And. I spent the whole first year that I was shooting Hoyts trying to shoot a bow that everybody else was doing good with. And it would shoot really good when I was at home and I didn't have pressure on me and I wasn't nervous and I wasn't tired. But then I would find out at the tournaments that as a natural tournament pressure starts to be applied and you start to go from shooting for an hour in your backyard to having to take nine hours to shoot that same amount of arrows, you just start to mentally and physically break down. And if that bow is not, you know, quote-unquote forgiving for your style of shooting, then it starts to get really difficult to repeat your shots with that particular bow. Um, I've got along really good with a cam system that's less aggressive i like having a longer valley and i actually don't mind having slightly higher let off some archers especially the ones that really focus on aiming like to have a bow that has a very solid wall and something that you know just kind of sits there like a rock For me, when I shoot that way for very long, I start to get very stale and I start to get very stagnant. And my shots aren't dynamic. They're just static. And when that starts to happen, my groups just open up with my style of shooting. Um, For axle-to-axle length, you know, I'm a tall person. So, technically, with a 31 inch draw, I'm 6'5, a 34 or, a, yeah, even a 34 inch bow for a lot of people would not be considered a forgiving setup. However, what I focus on the most when it comes to forgiveness is when it comes to axle to axle length, is what is the brace height and what is the string angle like at full draw. Because there's 34-inch bows axle-to-axle that have a much sharper string angle at full draw than other bows. And for me, the sharper that string angle gets, the further the peep sight gets away from your eye, which in my opinion has a bigger impact on... um, accuracy. I feel like the further that peep gets out in front of your eye, the harder it is to have perfect alignment with your front sight. The other thing too is some bows are more forgiving because they're more torsionally rigid. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of bows on the market right now that I personally, if I was If I was going to go out and buy myself any bow and I was just going to walk into a store, try a whole bunch of bows and shoot them, there's a few bows that are mainline bows that I personally would just walk away from mainly because of their stability and their torsional rigidness at full draw. And what I look for on that is if I put... A 40, 35 inch stabilizer or forty-inch stabilizer on a bow, and I draw it back and come to full draw. If that stabilizer, when the bow is at rest, is perfectly down the center of the bow, but then when I'm at full draw, that stabilizer is all the way swung out. Um, you know, for me on a right-hand shooter, a lot of times if a riser is torsionally weak the end of that stabilizer will swing way out to the right. And what that's showing you is how much actual torque and flex your riser has at full draw. And in my opinion, the more a riser is bending and twisting as it comes to full draw, the more sensitive it will be to front torque on your front bow hand and also how your release comes off of your face as that as you fire because if the bow is twisting and the string is already going into the cam slots at a funny angle, if you change how your hand comes away from your face at all, you're going to dramatically start to change the actual accuracy of that bow. Some have been way more favorable than others. Another way that you can tell that too is when your bow is at rest and you have an arrow knocked on the arrow rest, the arrow rest is up. Um, if you're looking right down your string and aligning your string right down the center of your arrow shaft and then looking forward to your sight pins, if your sight pins have to be way further left of the arrow shaft, that tells you also how much that riser is bending in order for those pins at full draw to then bend straight over the the uh, path of the arrow. You know, in most bows that have that are pretty solid, your pins are going to be right on the left edge of your shaft. Some of the really good bows, like for example, any of my shoot-through risers, um, like on my uh, Hyper Edge or Pro Comp or any of the Elite risers that Hoyt's got, Your stabilizer, your pins, your arrow shaft, your rest, they're all right down the center, right down in line. And it's because of the stability and how much rigidness they have torsionally. Uh, It's really important. It builds into accuracy. Uh, I like to have a brace height that's about seven inches or more. I like um, to be able to keep my head in a straight up and down uh, vertical position, just turn towards the target and when I do that I want this string at the corner of my mouth tip of my nose. Uh, if I'm able to achieve that string angle with the bow that has that brace height uh, then I'm pretty comfortable when it comes to actual specs of the bow. From there I check those other things that I talked about. Um, we're kind of approaching an hour here really quick so uh, well, I'll do one more question. Then I'm going to shut this podcast down and I'll go into a part two continuation. So last question here is, <laughs> let's hear your opinion on the people in the industry that want to see it burn. Those guys that will criticize everyone and cause trouble. I'm sure you have your fair share of haters. Who? Yeah. Uh, no time for hate for me. Um I'm pretty fortunate. My am I, I, very and this could be um <laughs> this could be spurred in case you I made a post um earlier this week. Oh well when I post I think when I posted that biter video, someone went on there and went off about my wolf story that I told on Joe Rogan's podcast and uh kinda made some pretty negative comments. So Although I hadn't really done it publicly before, I went ahead and posted a bunch of photos that I had taken from that day and kind of made a comment to the guy uh because he he just intentionally wanted to to go after me with hate and it's pretty rare that that happens to be honest with you but um I just surround myself with with good people I don't pay attention to that stuff. There's, there's people that just want to have something negative to say about everything in life, and I don't have any time for those people. And as an industry, we shouldn't either. Honestly, to all you listeners out there, um, when Archery Talk first started, I was one of the biggest advocates of Archery Talk. I thought that was going to be the awesomest thing. Um, I signed up. I was on there for maybe a month. And then I just said, you know what? Screw it. Because there's just so many people on there that want to have their opinion. And if it's wrong or if you disagree with it and try to tell them it's wrong, they're just an immediately going to go into this big hate and just trash you. And, you know, it just becomes all about bow brands or, you know, he shoots this or he shoots that. And honestly, you, the more if you even waste time reading through that stuff you're just gonna like f- full or uh fill your life up with just this whole negative vibe um you know I think back to um Jeff bridges and Tron when he, he looked at his uh he looked at his son Sam Flynn in the movie and just said um I forget what he says he said he goes. You're really wrecking my Zen thing, man. And I'm feeling the same way. If people are sitting there talking about stuff that's negative. I normally just stop them and I am I just kind of give them a warning. I do this with a lot of my new friends. Um, I I was friends with a guy in Canada several years back and I just told him, you know, he kind of was going into some drama and I just told him, I said, hey, buddy we're we're cool we're friends just so you know i kind of you know if you need to vent i'm cool with that i said venting and me being a friend i understand but i said when it's like if you're just gonna talk drama all the time then i'm out and it came up again a couple weeks later and i just said hey you're kind of going down let's talk about something positive and he just kind of stayed on it so that was it i was delete i'm done uh yeah i don't have any time for that yeah this guy actually i'm gonna read this comment just because i think it was funny sometimes i get humor out of it but this guy jim said listen to your ridiculously horseshit and unscientific story on joe rogan's podcast so at what point did the aliens come down to rescue you guys and give you a ride home. Probably the dumbest story I've ever heard on this podcast. So yeah, normally I don't even waste time, but for this one, I just thought it'd be funny. Uh, cause sometimes people are so sure of themselves. So I just said, "What a what a what's awesome about telling stories and having someone so confidently insult you is when you're actually out there videoing and taking photo- photos." Pretty easy to back up my story. I chose not to post these pics of the wolves publicly, but now maybe I should. So I posted posted some pics of when we were cleaning the elk, and then literally have it half cut open, and then I've got the pictures of the tracks of the main alpha that came towards me, and then I have uh, the big alpha that I shot, and then the other two ones that were shot. Um, and you can pretty much tell by what we're wearing. It was like right then. So there you go. And I guess I got the times and dates on my photos if you're really going to be a wiener about it. But, uh, that's it. We're going to wrap this podcast up. I drew the line halfway through this page. So I got some more cool stuff coming up in the next podcast, shooting in the wind uh grip position, hooter shooter stuff, man, there's so much here. If you if you miss it, you're going to be crazy. So thanks everybody. Appreciate it very much. Uh, check out our new stuff on the knock on archery, uh, website that release is coming. I'm telling you, I'm only going to have limited number of them. They're going to be awesome. Definitely going to want to see it. Um, other than that, I'm pretty geeked out getting geared up for bear hunting and, uh, excited it's friday let's party good luck to all my friends at the asa shoot uh i know several of you you talked to me at the asa shoot and uh good luck out there make sure you don't overthink it don't do too much during a just because it's your first tournament several of you said it's your first tournament wondering what you need to do and my advice is don't do too much just go do your thing don't overthink it it's just a tournament with more buddies there it's like you know if you're having a party at your house and it's just you and the family i mean isn't the party funner when you have all your buds come over and you roll in a couple keggers and it's really going down that's what you need to do at the shoot roll a kegger out there range c kegger party uh ryan bronco's buying peace out later dudes be sure to visit knockonartry.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonartry.com.